All of us want to be the best version of ourselves, but often things get in the way. We can get in our own way. Knowing what our best looks like is one of the biggest struggles of being the best of you. So today, as if you have a church background, then you know that we are discussing one of the most talked about and debated passages in the entire Bible, and we're going to do it in about 30 minutes, and it's going to be great. But to kind of set the scene for you, I want to tell you a little bit of a story of kind of what we do in our family. So every week, we have our family Sabbath dinner together, and we, and we make a, a fun meal. We make a big cookie where we sit, and we eat it together, and we light candles, and, and we just have a slower evening together as a family. And one of the things that we do, one of our kids' favorite things is we pull out conversation cards. And these cards just ask random questions, you know, things like, what's your favorite vacation ever? Um, you know, if, what's your favorite food, best flavor of ice cream? Um, you know, questions like point to the person who's most likely to succeed, you know, sitting in your group, point to the person most likely to end up in prison, um, you know, things like that. And, you know, and they also have, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you know, every kid's favorite questions, would you rather, right? These are, you know, the, the endless questions, dad, would you rather, would you rather, you know? Well, one of the questions, we also have ones that are about faith and questions about spirituality. And so as we were going through our conversation cards recently, one of the questions that came up was this one. If you could ask God anything and get a definitive answer, what would you ask him? I mean, think about it for a moment. So if you're face-to-face -face with God, you could ask him anything and you knew that he would give you an answer, what would you ask him? And so we kind of, we thought for a second. And it's interesting because if you think about it, you would maybe ask him about a situation in your life. You know, why did this situation happen? Why did, why did this person get sick? Why did this person pass away? Why did this job not work out? Why did I get cut from this team in middle school? You would maybe ask a question about a relationship. Maybe you'd ask a question about a decision. And so we went around the table and, and, I, and I shared mine and, and I talked about a question that I would ask if God could give me a definitive answer. And one of our kids said, you know, I would ask God, how do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? I said, well, that's a good question. And I said, well, what do you, you know, what do you mean? Unpack that a little bit more. And, and he said, well, he said, I know you can know for sure. He's like, I know the church answer, dad. Like, I know you can know for sure. He said, I know there's verses. He said, I know that, you know, there's a way to know. He said, but a couple weeks ago in a sermon, he said, you made this comment. He said that some people are gonna stand before God one day who think they're Christians, who think they're following Jesus, but Jesus says to them, I don't know who you are. He said, so I, wanna, I would wanna know how does that happen? Now here, my first thought was, my first thought was, my kids listen to my sermons. <laughs> like I was so excited as a parent, number one. So that was my first thought. But then it's a great question. And if you're not sure, just to give you a little bit of context, here's the passage my, one of our kids was talking about. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of it in Matthew 7, he's after telling us what the kingdom of God is like, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, your lawbreakers. Now, I remember the first time that I heard this verse in a sermon when I was in college. 
it terrified me. Terrified me. Because I sat there and I thought, how is it possible to think that you are doing things in God's name, following after God, but not? How is that even possible? How is it possible to do what you think is God's work and not be following after God? Which leads us to the question that my son was asking, which leads us to the question of security. Because for many of us, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to faith, one of our biggest struggles is security. Now, security is something that all of us want. We want it in, in different ways. All of us uh, look for it at varying levels. All of us want security in our house. It's why you go around at the end of the night and check the doors and check the, check the garage door and check the lights and you check the windows. All of us want security in our finances, in our retirement. All of us want to feel secure in our lives, in our careers, in our relationships. We want to know that we can trust the other person, that they'll be there that they'll follow through, that they won't betray us. If you have kids, you, you want them to feel secure. You want them to know that you love them, that they can, can have confidence in your love. But the same is true in our relationship with God. We all want security. And we struggle to feel it many times when we pray for something and we don't feel like God answers us or we don't feel like God moves on our timeline or, or, we, or we do something and we think, man, am I not secure anymore in my relationship with God? Did I sin and, and now... You know, and for me, I remember when I heard this verse in Matthew 7, I remember just being terrified that I could do something, that I could commit some kind of sin and I would stand before God and Jesus would look at me and be like, you know what, I don't know who you are. And it terrified me to the point that for, for several years, every single night, I would lay in bed and I would just pray again and be like, God, help me to be a Christian. Like, help me to like, if I stand before you, if I die in my sleep, because I grew up in a church where they would always say this, you know, if you were to die tonight, okay? Like not today, like not during the day, like at night in your sleep, do you know? Like it was always terrifying. And so I would, I would just go to bed every night and thinking, am I, am I a Christian? Am I secure? Am I okay? Like, Jesus, are we okay? Should I pass you a note that says, do you like me? Yes, no, or maybe like, I, like, and many of us, if we're honest, struggle with that. We struggle to believe and know, like many of us believe that we're secure in God, but don't feel it. Many of us believe that nothing can separate us from God's love, but struggle to feel that love. Many of us believe that God will forgive us for everything that we do and has grace for everything that we will ever, ever do, but struggle. This is why we say, I don't know if I can forgive myself. I don't know if I can let go. And that's insecurity, which leaves us to wonder, how do we know if you're secure with God? See, and the debate will go like this many times. It will center around, you know, Someone will say, all you need to get to heaven, all you need to be secure in your relationship with God is just believe. You just gotta believe the right things. If you believe the right things, you'll be fine. Uh, other people will say, you know, maybe if you grew up in a church like that, it's just your fire insurance. Just pray this prayer, walk this aisle, got your fire insurance, you're good to go. Other people, maybe you'll hear, you know, you, you, just, need to, you just need to believe more. You know, God didn't answer that prayer because you didn't have enough faith. You just gotta believe more. 
Or maybe here's one of the struggles that many of us have, especially if you're not a follower of Jesus. You may have known somebody who prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, got baptized, did a whole bunch of really good things at one point, but now live like they're not following Jesus. And you wonder, how does that add up? How does, how does that work together? Or maybe you were told somewhere along the way that all you have to do in life to get into heaven, to be in God's presence is to just have your good works outweigh your bad works. And if your good works at the end of the day, if the scale is in your favor, you'll get in. But if your bad works are working against you, you won't. But here's the thing, no one ever tells you, like, are they all equal? Like, are good works equal to bad works? Like, how does that work? And how do you know? Like, do you keep track? Like, how do you know, if you're, how, do you know how you're doing? Sometimes we think, well, maybe I just need to help myself. You know, God helps those who help themselves, which isn't anywhere in the Bible. Just in case you're wondering, it's not actually a thing. <laughs> but it leads to this question then, and it's one that I've wrestled with throughout my life, and maybe you have on varying levels, but does it matter what you believe? Like, does it matter what you do? Is, is what you believe or what you do, is one of those more important than the other ones? How do we handle this question of faith and works? Now, this question is one that has been debated for centuries, has been debated since James wrote these words. And, and really, several hundred years ago, this is what split the Catholic and Protestant church, this question of faith and works and how, and how they go together. But really, I think at the heart of it is this question of security, of how do I know I'm secure in my relationship with God? And that question is at the heart of the book of James. And, and here's the thing, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, that it's hard to be the best of you, as we're looking at this, to be the best of you. It's hard to be the best of you if you aren't secure. It's hard to be the best of you if you aren't secure. And this applies to everything. I mean, it's hard to be uh, the, the best employer, best coworker if you're not secure in your job, if you're not secure in your talents and gifts. It's hard to be the best spouse, the best parent if you're not secure in your family. It's hard to be the best of you if you're not secure. And it's hard to be the best of you in your relationship with God and as you live out in the world and try to live out your faith if you aren't secure in your relationship with God. And many of us, one of the reasons that we kind of stay on the sidelines of faith and, and kind of hold back and not actually step out when God calls us to is because we don't feel secure in our relationship with our heavenly father. We don't feel secure. Now, at the heart of James, in the middle of the book of James is this passage, this one that is debated. Now, to give you the context as we're heading into it, what James has been laying out up until this point are really kind of tests and ways for us to see how real our faith is. He's been asking questions. How do we handle trials? How do we handle difficulties in life? How do we make decisions? How do we handle temptations and addictions? Do those things and how do those things show if our faith is real, if it's alive, if it's active? And then he's gonna get to the heart of it and say, it's not just about doing something because it's easy to just do something. It's easy to just have a, a list of rules to follow. But he wants to get to this is what an active faith does this is what it looks like. And then the rest of the book of James is really just him applying this passage, these few verses to a variety of different topics, like how we use our words with other people, how we handle our finances, how we deal with suffering. He's gonna bring that up again, how we make decisions and wisdom. 
And so really what's interesting, if you look at James, is that James has kind of hit these different topics. He then gets to this idea of faith and how it interplays with obedience and works. And then he goes back to literally all those topics again to apply it. And so that's where we're headed for the rest of it. And so this is what James has to say. This is the heart of it, okay? In verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. And so this is the question. How, how, does, faith, where, how does faith and works work together? What is the interplay? Does one come before the other one? Can, can you have faith without works? Like, what does that look like? Those are the questions that James is trying to get to. And so he gives an example. He says, hey, if you see someone who is, who's cold, who doesn't have the right clothes, who you know, is lacking clothes, is lacking food, and you just say, hey, like, I hope, I hope it works out for you. Like, I hope you're able to find a blanket. I hope you're able to get some food. I, I hope you're able to get what you need. He says, if you do that, what good is that? What good is it to look at somebody and just give them well wishes? What good is that? Like here's something closer to home. Have you ever seen a situation, maybe a, a family in need, somebody in your family who is struggling with something and you thought, you know what, someone should really do something about that. Have you ever seen a, an injustice in the world and thought, you know, I hope someone does something about that. James wants us to ask, is that good? Is that good? Is that faith? When you look at somebody in need and think, I hope someone helps them. James wants to ask, why didn't you? What good is that thought? Is that, is that good? Is that what we should do? See, because in that moment, the moment that you and I see that need, see that injustice, our faith has the opportunity to become real. And it's hard because that moment is a question of, will I enter into discomfort? Will I get out of my comfort zone? Because I don't know if you've realized this yet, but following Jesus will not keep you in your comfort zone. So I would say this, like, if you look around and be like, I'm feeling pretty comfortable, nothing's difficult right now. Like, James is wanting to press into that a little bit. Like, I remember when, when we started the process of adopting our, our youngest two, and we would get asked by, by well-meaning friends and family if we had lost our minds because we had three kids already. I remember somebody telling us, this was, they looked at us and they said, hey, you know, like I'm, gonna, um, I'm not gonna give to your adoption. And, and I said, okay. And they said, you know, because like, I just don't wanna be party to you guys going bankrupt. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll just put money in their college funds for you. And I was like, that's fine. But here's what happened for us is Katie and I looked, because somebody asked us one time in the midst of this, they said, well, why are you adopting? Like you're planting a church, you have three kids under five years old, like is this really the right time? Like we were, we, we literally, just to give you an idea, the, the price of our adoption was so much more than what we could afford. Our agency, which is a Christian agency said, you know, we believe in miracles, um, but like we really just don't think you can afford this. And, and Katie, I still remember, I'm sitting in our dining room and she's on the phone with them and she goes, so that's cool, but we're still doing it. <laughs> and 
then, and, and so, somebody said to us, they're like, well, well, why are you? And, and for us, that, now this is us. So I want to be really clear, okay? For us, in that moment, as we saw that plight and injustice, we knew if we didn't step in, we would be living in sin. Now, that does not mean that everybody else has to do that. I want to be really clear, okay? And be really, really clear on that. But for us, we knew in that moment that we looked at that situation, we looked at orphans, and we said, this is something we have to step into. And in that moment, that is the moment and you and I have these moments in really big decisions, like adding to our family and really small decisions of, well, I just sit with somebody who needs a friend. And in that moment, we have the question of, will I step into a need? Will I upset my life for that? See, and that's the moment when faith becomes real. Because what James is wanting us to, to ask and see is when you and I see a need, faith does something, okay? If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, that faith that is alive does something when it knows it should do something. Faith that is alive does something when it knows it should do something. Now, it is easy to, to read James 2 and go, yeah, that makes total sense. But you and I can also look back over our lives and go, man, like, I, I totally missed that. Does that mean my faith isn't active? Does that mean, like, I'm not following Jesus? Am I, like, one of the people in Matthew 7 that I'm going to stand before Jesus? And Jesus is like, you know what? There was a couple of, couple of days you did it right, but, like, there was, most of it was not. And that's what we wonder, and that's what we wrestle with. And chances are, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is one of your biggest struggles with the church and Jesus is that you see a whole bunch of people who claim to follow Jesus and you're like, yeah, but you're like walking by a whole bunch of needs and not doing anything. And that's a legitimate gripe against the church a lot of times. That's a legitimate complaint. Is a group of people saying, I've been changed by God, but I'm just gonna keep walking by needs. And so James gives us an example. He says, okay, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by his works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, this is the, the crux of the book of James, this passage. And to start with, what James wants us to see is that belief matters, okay? Belief matters. And, and, and for many of us, like James, he came at his belief in Jesus um, not easily, okay? If you read through the Gospels, you know, now remember, James is the brother of Jesus. And you read through the Gospels and you know that Jesus's family struggled to believe that he was the Messiah. It wasn't until after his death and resurrection that James began following Jesus. So for him, belief and faith was something that he had to like fight to get to. 
It was not an easy thing. Some of us, it, it, it's this, this road into Christianity for many of us is an easy road of belief, but for others of us, it is a battle to believe that God is who he says he is. And so James says, you know, belief matters, but he says, it's not just belief because even the demons believe in God. Even the demons believe. Right? So, I mean, we, we have this idea. So the, for those of us who are like, well, you just have to believe, James would be like, well, that's cool. Like demons do. I don't want to be a demon like or compared to them or in the same category as them. And so James says, okay, but, but so then we're sitting here go, okay, well then what? Like, don't I just have to believe? Like, isn't that just enough? And James wants us to see that there are two kinds of faith. Okay. There are two kinds of faith. One that is real and lasting that produces fruit and one that doesn't. Because when we think of faith, oftentimes we think of just that moment when I made that decision of following Jesus and James says, no, no, it's that whole journey of the Christian life between that moment of taking that step of following Jesus and the moment that you stand before Jesus. Faith is this whole journey. And so to help us see that, he gives two examples, which to this crowd in the first century, to this Jewish group of people who got these, these letters, the two names that he gives them are names that they would know very well. They would know all the stories of these two people, of Abraham and Rahab. They would know exactly who they were. Abraham is, is, the, is really where it all began for the people of God, for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. In Genesis 12, Abraham is out in his land and God comes to him and says, Abraham, I want you to go to the land that I'm gonna show you. I'm gonna make you into a great nation, into a great people, and I'm gonna bless all the nations through you. And he says, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, the problem is at this moment, Abraham doesn't have any kids. He's 75. And I've always wondered at this because when you read through Genesis and you end Genesis 11, we don't have any mention of Abraham until Genesis 12. And all of a sudden God comes to Abraham and says, just go to the land I'm gonna show you. And Abraham goes. I mean, think about it for a moment. What, like if God showed up to you today and said, I want you to go and do X, Y, and Z. I want you to go and do this. Would you be like, I don't know. Like, did I get enough sleep last night? So then he goes back and says to his wife, hey, we're gonna pack up and go. I mean, imagine that conversation. Well, where are we going? I don't know. You, what do you mean? Well, we're leaving. Because in that moment, what God is inviting him into is, you're, are you going to trust me? Are you going to follow, follow me? So Abraham moves. And it takes 25 years for Abraham to have the child that God promised him. Now, here's why this is important is because in those 25 years, Abraham does what many of us seek to do is he tries to take control of the situation. He tries to grab it. He tries to have a child. He says, well, you know, God promised this. So like, let me try to, you know, I'm going to help God out. I'm going to try to step into this. And so in many ways, Abraham is this picture of you and I in that Abraham taking two steps forward and kind of three steps back and kind of stumbling and bumbling his way. And that's what faith is. Faith is these moments of total surrender, of packing up and leaving everything that you know. And faith is also trying to take control to fulfill God's promises on your own. Okay? This is the journey of faith. And for many of us, 
the mess that that is, is incredibly uncomfortable. It is for me because I like a, I like a list. <laughs> I, I, like, I like categories. I like in and out. <laughs> but when I read Abraham, and yet Abraham is held up as this person of faith who is justified, I think he got like half of it right. <laughs> but I'm also so thankful that because of the power of God's grace, that is enough. And so Abraham is told, James uses this picture when Abraham is told by God to take his son Isaac to the mountain to sacrifice him. And in Genesis 22, God tells him, I want you to take your son, your only son, to the mountain and sacrifice him. Now in our minds, in our modern minds, we think that is awful. Like, why would God do that? Part of the things we have to understand, especially as we read scripture, is that as God speaks and as God moves, he moves within a time and culture. And in this time and culture, during Abraham's time, God's asking for the sacrifices of, of, of children was commonplace. So I don't think Abraham would have even batted an eye at this because this was a cultural piece of the world around them. Now, is that in our modern minds, I'm still going, really? And yet Abraham takes him and on the way, Isaac says, hey, like, we don't have an animal to sacrifice, dad. Like, where, what are we gonna do? And we're told in Genesis that Abraham looks at Isaac and says, God will provide. God will provide. And he takes him up onto the altar and he lays him on the altar and ties him down. And I wonder what that moment was like. I wonder, like, did he struggle to get him on? Like, did Isaac, like, fight back? I, I've always wondered what that moment was like. Did Isaac just sit there? Well, you know, I, I totally get it, dad. Like, whatever you need to do, like, just, you know. I don't think, I, I mean, and, and, you know, I just imagine Abraham wrenching in with going, God, what are you even thinking? Like, we're not even told any of the internal dialogue that Abraham had in Genesis. Which that is what I, I would love to know what was running through his mind. Just questions of God, are you serious? Like, how could I even do this? How could I, how, how could you ask me to do this? Like, I just imagine Abraham with just tears streaming down his face. And we're told in Genesis 22, after this moment that God comes to him and says, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. And James tells us then in this situation, in this moment in verse 22, he says, Abraham's faith was active with his works and by his works, his faith was made complete. Abraham's faith was active with his works. Again, we've said this numerous times in James, the order of things matter. His faith was active, seen in his works and his faith was made complete. And Paul, when Paul describes this in Romans, he describes that, that the one who trusts God is the one who is made right with God. What did Abraham do? In this moment, he trusted God. God said, go and do this. Go and do this awful thing that I know you don't wanna do. And Abraham trusted God and is made right. See, Romans and James, many times people will try to like put them up against each other, but they're, but they're not. Faith produces works. And our faith is seen in the things that we do. And so our works, our obedience, they show where our faith is. And again, the comfort of Abraham is how many times 
he dropped the ball. How many times he made the wrong decision? And yet, and yet, his faith was complete. And so just to give us even more, James tells us about Rahab, which in the first century is, would kind of put people back on their heels a little bit for a couple of reasons. One, Rahab is a woman. Two, Rahab is not Jewish. So you take the father of the nation of Israel and Abraham, where it began, and you hold him up and everyone's like, well, yeah, Abraham. Like we get Abraham. Abraham is, he's our guy. Like he's, you know, we hold him up. We have Abraham day and, you know, he's, and then James is like, and Rahab. And everyone's like, you know, they're not the same, James, right? Like, you know, like she's a woman, she's not Jewish, like, you, you know. And I think he does that for a really specific reason. One, to show us that God's grace is for everybody. He's showing us that God's, God's ability to rescue anybody, no matter how far they are, no matter how much we think that person, because all of us have people in our lives who we think there is no way that that person could follow after God. All of us have friends and family. We have parents, we have kids, and we think, you know, there is no way. Like we'll say, you know, by the grace of God, if only God. And the story of Rahab the prostitute is to show us that if only God is just enough. It's just enough. And it's to show us too that no matter what you do, there's not a chance that you are beyond God's grace. There isn't anything that you did ever in your life that is beyond the grace of God. There is not anything in your life that you could ever do that is beyond the grace of God. So many of us, I, I know so many people who just think, I don't know that I can get past what I did. I don't know that I can forgive myself. And the story of Rahab shows us no matter what you've done, you're never too far for God's grace. You're never too far. But also, anyone can act on their faith and have it make an impact in God's grand scheme of things. Because in this moment when what happens in in Rahab's life is that the nation of Israel is outside the promised land. Rahab lives in the promised land, the land that God has promised the nation of Israel after they came out of slavery in Egypt. And they send spies into the land to see, you know, what it's gonna take to move into the land. And only two come back and say that we should go into the land, that we can take the land that God's given to us. And those two are the ones that stumble upon Rahab. Once the people in the, in the promised land find out that they're spies, they start sending out the word they're trying to find. And so... Rahab helps them to get out. And she says, hey, when you come back in, don't forget me. Don't forget me. And James says what she did was enough. It's her faith. Faith was made complete. See, because again, all of us face all kinds of things every single day that we think someone should do something about that. And James says in that moment, 
your faith has the chance to become real. But he tells us the stories of Rahab and Abraham so that we also know that even when we miss them and we look back, because I can look back on my life and I can probably see more missed opportunities than opportunities I got right. And James says, but that's what grace is. That's what grace is. And I think in my mind, but that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I don't understand how that adds up. And I just imagine, I don't know what James's answer would be to that, but I just imagine James being like, well, that's what makes it grace. And for us as followers of Jesus, our faith is made real and complete in our obedience, in our works. It's seen in our fruit. That's what Jesus said. When he said, how do you know if someone's a follower of Jesus? It's in your fruit. It's in, it, you, see, you see what's inside comes out. You see it. See, and James isn't saying, I want to be really clear. James isn't saying that one day our good works are going to be measured against our bad works. He's not saying there's a scale or anything like that. He isn't saying that our works save us. Because here's the thing about works, is you and I, we actually don't need God if our works can save us. Like, we don't need God for that. If it's just about what we do, and that's it, we, we actually don't need God. We don't need a savior. But James says, the evidence of our faith is seen in our responses, in our obedience. Our faith is made complete in those moments. And the reason that you and I, when we step into an injustice, when we see a need, the reason, one of the reasons we do that is because that's exactly what God did. It's exactly what God did. When Paul says in Romans, he says, before you knew you were sinners, God stepped in and Christ Jesus died for you. And so as we prepare to come to the table today to take communion, I want you to remember that when we take communion, when we take this cup and we open this plastic cup and eat this bread and drink this juice, what we're reminding ourselves of is simply this, that at one moment you were in need and your savior stepped in. You are reminding yourself that at one point you were broken. Your life was a disaster. You were stuck in addiction. And before you even knew you needed a savior, Christ died for you, for you to be made new. And when we come to the table and we open this bread and we open this cup, we're reminding ourselves of how much God loved us. And the reason we do it every week is because every week we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. I need to walk into church and to be reminded at the table that God's grace is available. I need to be reminded that God's love for me is not just a belief on a page. It's not just a verse in the Bible, but it is an actual real thing that I live from. So every week we come to the table and say, God, I need to remember. And some of us today, maybe for you, maybe you're in a place where you just need to say, God, I need you to tell me again you love me. I need you to tell me again that you forgive me. And that's okay. That's what communion is. 
Maybe for you, you need to just say, God, I need you to remind me that that thing that I'm beating myself up about that I did 25 years ago, that that's covered. I can let go of that. That's what communion is. And so I want to give you a moment to just write where you are, whatever you need to bring to God before we take communion together. We're going to take it together in a moment. But to just pause. And maybe for you, you just need to celebrate and just say, God, I'm so thankful. It's right where you are. God, this is what I need to tell you right now before we take the bread and the juice. 